Hello and welcome to today's webinar hosted by Educator, Innovator, and the National Association for Media Literacy Education. Educator Innovator is powered by the National Writing Project and serves as an online hub for educators and organizations who value open learning and whose interests and spirits exemplify connected learning. The National Association for Media Literacy Education is a national organization dedicated to media literacy. Namely's mission is to be the leading voice, convener, and resource to foster critical thinking and effective communication for empowered media participation. The Namely vision is to see media literacy as highly valued by all and widely practiced as an essential life skill for the 21st century. You can find links to both organizations in the material adjacent to this video. I'm your guest host, Rebecca Reynolds, and I'm an associate professor at Rutgers University in the School of Communication and Information, Department of Library and Information Science. My research investigates social constructivist human learning in naturalistic uh, online participatory settings, including social media environments and MOOCs. I also consider instructional technology design to meet specific educational goals and objectives, for instance, in schools. I explore how system design affordances can support and constrain knowledge building <clears throat> sharing and meaning making at individual and group levels. I conduct my work in a range of different knowledge domains, including computer science education and game design, digital literacy, and information literacy instruction. I have the pleasure of convening an exciting panel today entitled Fostering Media Literacy uh, and Information Literacy Among Students in a Post-Truth Era, Fake News, Social Media, and an Evolving Instructional Agenda. I'm very fortunate to be joined by three amazing colleagues. Um, the first is Catherine Fry, Catherine G. Fry, Professor of Media Studies and Chair of the Department of Television and Radio at the Brooklyn College of the City University of New York. And Catherine teaches and publishes in the areas of media, media ecology, media literacy, and cultural analysis of journalism. Catherine is interested in the changing definition of news and journalism as our communication technologies evolve. She's developed and teaches a model of activist media literacy education based on her grassroots media literacy education work as co-founder and former education director of the nonprofit New York City-based organization, The Lamp. Wendy Stevens teaches children's literature, instructional leadership, and school librarianship courses in the School of Education at Jacksonville State University in Jacksonville, Alabama. After working in both print and broadcast media, she spent 15 years as a high school librarian before she, uh, she joined the faculty of JSU as school library program chair in 2015. She has national board certification in library media and was the first Google certified teacher in Alabama. She earned her PhD from the University of North Texas where her doctoral dissertation focused on the relationships between graphic novel reading and teen attitudes towards literacy and libraries. And we also have Peter Adams who is the News Literacy Project Senior Vice President of Education and is based in Chicago. Peter began his career in education as a classroom teacher in the New York City schools. He has also worked as a trainer in the New York City Teaching Fellows Program a youth media after-school instructor in the Chicago Public Schools, and as an adjunct instructor at Roosevelt University and Chicago City College's Wilbur Wright campus. He's a graduate of Indiana University, where he majored in English and African American Studies and co-founded an independent monthly student paper, and has a master's degree in the humanities from the University of Chicago. So I welcome my uh, esteemed panel. I'm excited to have you all on board and thank you very much for your time and um, 
energy in putting together amazing uh, discussion here today with me. And um, so regarding today's topic, fake news uh, has been described as a kind of yellow journalism or propaganda that consists of deliberate misinformation or disinformation or hoaxes um, spread by a traditional print and broadcast news media or online social media. This uh, form of fake news can be written or published with the intent to mislead in order to damage an agency um, or uh, entity person and also to gain financially or politically. And oftentimes this content is seen as sensationalist, exaggerated, or patently false, um, and includes headlines that grab attention. Uh, and we see this uh, having proliferated in social media um, around the 2016 presidential campaign. So we've seen this idea of fake news rise to the national uh, level of discussion around media and information literacy education and critical thinking. Today's panelists will discuss this concept, modes of instruction for addressing this issue, and share their perspectives on what further conceptualization and actions may be needed for educators to successfully navigate today's evolving media climate with a view towards mis- and disinformation campaigns and cultivating our students' greater media discernment. So first we'll hear from Catherine, and then we'll toggle to Peter, uh, sorry, Wendy, and then Peter. And I will close with a few questions for our panel and lead just an impromptu discussion at the end. So without further ado, uh, I wanna welcome Professor Catherine Fry, and um, we will take it from there. Please uh, join me in welcoming Professor Catherine Fry. All right, thank you very much, Rebecca. I appreciate it. I'm going to, um, let me see, I want to bring up my slides first, and then um, let me begin by just talking about the fact that um, while I am appreciative of the term fake news, and I appreciate the discourse around it, and I understand the sense of panic and concern that people have, I want to reframe the conversation a little bit today and just start off by saying I'm not crazy about that term fake. Because for me, the term fake assumes that there is like an absolute objective real that exists out there. And I'm not sure that's the case. And the way that I have approached this topic since this term has um, been used is to encourage people to think historically about news and to think about the fact that news has in fact been changing since the beginning of when we first had this thing called news. And I'm going to go back to you know, the earliest days of the American Republic. Don't worry, I'm not gonna spend a lot of time there. But I do feel like it's important to establish some sort of historical timeline, just to show that as our communication media have changed and as the way that news has been presented and shaped in different um, communication media from print all the way to electronic media to the internet, the very definition of news has changed and we've never been living in any sort of golden era where news has been completely and absolutely true. So having said that, um, let me just take you through a couple of slides and give, you, give people a, perhaps a different way of thinking about all of this. So here's, here's my, my quick sort of historical rundown. 
Um, so back in the earliest days of news in the United States, there were, whatever was news was the product of one person who happened to have the technology to put out a newspaper or some sort of sheet of information. And it was available to people who happened to be able to read and had access to it. And that one person could say whatever he or she, well, it was always he, whatever he wanted to say. It was completely partisan. It was completely subjective. There was no such notion of objectivity um, at that point. And it wasn't until the 19th century with the, you know, the beginning of, you know, the mass production of newspapers and what is referred to as the penny press era that we even thought about news as having, um, as being full of facts and having any sort of objectivity. Um, but bear in mind, of course, that during the 19th century, as these um, newspapers were rising and competing with each other, there was a lot of made-up stuff that was being printed in newspapers. There are a lot of different examples of how um, various big-time, you know, news moguls were just, you know, creating fake stuff. So it's interesting to me that the term um, is sort of considered new today. It's not really new. And that's not my way of saying it doesn't matter. It does matter. I'm just offering a, a different sort of historical framework for looking at it. Um, then at the, in the beginning of the 20th century, we had the rise of radio as a news source. And then quickly on the heels of that, television in the mid-century became the source of most people's news, um, including network, local, and cable. And then it's only been a very short period of time that we have had this internet and social media as being a major source of news. It's been a really short period of time and um, that short period of time we've seen a whole new reframing, um, a whole new environment, I, I, I would say. Um, and I think that's causing some concern. All right, um, so the next slide, so I wanna talk just a little bit about how the fact that news is constructed, because that's kind of my go-to um, teaching, you know, teaching mode. I think it's really important that people understand that the modes of communication used to shape information are very different from each other, and they have a very different impact on the audience. So, for example, with newspapers, you've got words and you've got still photographs. I'm talking about, you know, your basic, you know, hard newspapers. We still have them. We still have them. They're, they are fewer in number. But newspapers shape information using words and photographs. Radio obviously only has sound as its mode. Television is a combination of words, still and moving visuals, graphics, sound, editing choices, all of it. It's a very compact and very dense format. Um, television also has a much shorter um, time frame that it's working in. So um, it, it varies significantly from radio as a source of information and from newspapers. Then, as I mentioned, of course, we have the internet, which is all about interactivity through social media. It's algorithm run. It's, it is a collapsed hierarchy. I'm going to explain a little bit more what I mean by that um, in just a moment. But before I move on to the next slide, I think it's important that people understand that each of these media as constructors of information is a completely different information environment. 
shaping information, news, if you will, in very different ways. And therefore, to me, the terms truth and falsity are a little bit obscuring or they're, they're a very sort of surface way of thinking about how information is constructed across media. Um, all right, so now I want to just launch into a little bit of explanation about the how, how the fact that all information and news in particular is very constrained by a lot of different elements. On the one hand, as I've just described in my earlier slide, news is constrained by the medium through which it's um, shaped. Okay, you know, and like I said, whether it's words, sound, visuals, editing, all these different ways constrain the kind of information, what the information is that the audience eventually gets. So it's a different kind of information. News is also highly constrained by the organization that puts it out. So in, the, so in sort of traditional legacy media, like newspapers, television news stations, radio news um, station, radio news formats, for example, these are all have traditionally been organizations that have a sort of a hierarchy of reporters, editors, producers, owners that have a lot of voice, a strong voice in saying, what's what should be the news of the day? What's the way that we should cast the information? What are we gonna leave in? What are we gonna take out? And all, you know, all of this is very, um, it's, it's complex, but it's very much the tradition of legacy news. So a lot of different people are involved in the decision-making process. And that, had, that has traditionally been the way that news has been cast and recast. And the audience traditionally has not had a lot of say about it. Um, the next point is the hierarchies of the news organizations, which is what I just pretty much explained. Um, journalists, and I have a degree in journalism myself, and I remember being trained as a newspaper journalist as an undergraduate, and I remember being trained to um, ask certain types of questions when I'm covering a story and to um, interview certain kinds of people, who are the right people to interview, who are the wrong people to interview. And there was always this underlying notion that there is a way that one can be an objective as a journalist. And it wasn't until I started studying journalism, journalism as a scholar that I realized that there's a certain sort of, there's a lot of bias that's embedded in the way that journalists are trained. And um, I became very, very interested in this notion of objectivity. And I have to say, I'm firmly in the camp of saying that there is no such thing as objectivity necessarily. And um, for all the reasons that I just gave you. Um, the final point that I want to make about news, whether no matter which medium it is, um, you know, broadcast in or printed in or made available in, economics are a huge constraining factor. In the traditional world of news and information and the traditional news channels, it's been advertising constraints. And there are a lot of examples um, given, excuse me, where advertisers have um, um, put a stop to certain kinds of news being um, transmitted because they were paying for it and they didn't it didn't look good for them, for example. Um, in the current news environment, which is the digital environment, which I'm gonna talk a little bit more because it's the actual 21st century reality that we're living in, 
it's not so much the traditional advertising constraint as we knew it, but more the, the algorithms that are driving the economy of news. And that has everything to do with the way that people participate in news today. So participation is a huge factor in the social media environment that we're living in today. So we have, you know, here we are in almost, uh, we're, we're edging close to the mid 21st century, believe it or not. And we've, and social media, I think we can all agree, uh, um, is the environment, the communication environment that we're most embedded in currently, especially with regard to news. And it's been a complete game changer. So legacy news is still with us, but legacy news, you know, newspapers, television news stations, radio um, stations, all rely heavily on the participation that happens through social media like Facebook and Twitter and even Snapchat, believe it or not, is considered, you know, a viable and important source of information um, display and participation and circulation. So that means that the traditional hierarchy of news has nearly collapsed and that almost anyone has access and especially um, the everyday social media user is able to participate like never before in sharing and even creating news that they never had access to before. And so what this means is that the notions, the traditional journalistic notions of truth, reliability, and objectivity have brand new meanings. And I want to explain a little bit about what I mean by that. Um, I, um, part of my research um, in the past few years has been towards interviewing news audiences and just talking to people, you know, actual news users and participants, how they define news today, where they go for their news, and, you know, what do they think news is now? And it's been fascinating for me. Um, most recently, I conducted focus groups with students here at Brooklyn College, mostly undergrads, and then students um, in, at Bill Kent University in Turkey, because that's where I was living and teaching um, just two years ago. And I, you know, I asked them the same questions, and without going into all the details about that research and what I was able to find, the one, one of the things that really stood out for me in, um, in my conversations with those students is the fact that all of them, almost to a person, said that they consider truth in news and reliability in news to be what they're able to glean when they themselves go to a lot of different sources and especially compare the news coming from lay people that are at, you know, on the ground at an event as it's happening um, and compare it to how traditional news organizations are covering it. All of the students expressed a lot of um, skepticism about traditional news for various different reasons. Some because they understand the advertising um, drivenness of a lot of corporate news, and they also, they also had a fear of government censorship, and that was particularly with the Turkish students. So they didn't use truth, reliability, or objectivity as terms to describe any sort of one media story that might come out, they didn't think that that's where truth or reliability lay. They felt like it was up to them to discern it, to determine it by their own participation and their own sort of 
um, archiving of news. I found that fascinating and a really, really important thing to consider when rethinking the way that news happens today. Um, so, you know, I'm very interested in media literacy. I consider news literacy to be a part of media literacy. And um, I think that the digital environment is the environment, like I said, that we're living in. So a couple of things to keep in mind. First of all, you know, news, like I said, is an evolving genre. It's been evolving since we've started using the term news and it evolves in new environments of communication. Our current environment is a digital environment and we need to understand the digital environment above all. I think all media genres are blurring now in this new participatory environment. Um, participation is key. We need to understand how it operates. We under need to understand how people participate and why it's changed the rules. Um, and I think people need to really take responsibility um, for how they are participating. It's upon all of us. And I think that's where media literacy education plays a really important role in preparing people to understand just what kind of environment that we're living in because it's affecting how we understand um, not just news and information, but how we, we understand each other and we understand our world. Um, very quickly, just a couple of questions that I have um, posed on screen here. There are a lot more to ask, but just as a way of getting people started and thinking about how do we talk to not just young people, but everybody about um, assessing information online, because I know that that's a huge thing for a lot of people is just like, how do we teach people to assess? Okay, so um, if that's the conversation, here are just a couple of questions you can throw out there. I know that other media literacy educators have offered very similar um, sort of checklists. But the first question to always ask when encountering anything um, online or, or in legacy media is just ask, who produced the piece? Okay, what do we know about that producer? What, what do we understand to be their agenda or what are they getting out of it? Um, who's paying for it? Is it, a, you know, is it a traditional advertiser that's paying the bill for us to have access to the infor this information? If it's on social media, um, you know, who gains if we click on this story and if we share this story? Who's getting what out of it? Um, what are the tactics that are being used to get us to click on a story? You know, we're all, you know, we've all seen a million times these hyperbolic terms that are used um, or these, these pictures that are posted and then once you click on the story you see that really that was just clickbait and the story has, is not at all what it promised to be. Um, you know, that's a really basic thing. When, when you see something like that, ask a lot of serious questions before you even go ahead and click on it because somebody's getting something out of your clicking on it. Um, and it's good to know what that might be. Um, finally, when you get into a story, just try to figure out what's the focus here? What's the purpose of it? What is maybe being left out of this story? And, you know, probably a lot. Um, and then finally, the biggest question for me is, how am I participating in all of this information flow? What, what responsibilities do I have as a, as a typical social media user? Um, yeah, it's, it's a lot of stuff. I feel like I talked through a lot of stuff very, very quickly. Um, I'm happy to share any information with anybody who would want to contact me offline or in another way um, about my research, about, you know, a sort of deeper understanding about the digital environment and how to approach it. 
from sort of a media literacy slash news literacy perspective. So I'll leave it at that. And now I'm going to turn myself over to Wendy Stevens, who has more to say. Thank you very much. That was that was just excellent. It, you know, it reminds me a lot of the um, the adage about um, if you're if you're if the service is free, uh, the odds are that you're the um, that you're the product. You're the one whose information is actually being um, being harvested and being used. And I I do tend to be a little um, a little conservative when it comes to um, the information that, that I like to share compared to a lot of people that I know, but um, I do think it's so important to think about how all of that is, um, is really um, influencing the media landscape, what we are doing to interact with that, that media ecosystem and how that's then driving what we end, um, end up seeing. And, you know, I think one of the, the major things is that there are, is no more um, Walter Cronkite. You know, there's no more shared media experience that um, a lot of people had together and that, you know, was coming kind of from, from a centralist direction. So regardless of the quality of the journalism and the fact that it, that it was going to be that constructed reality, which, um, which I felt that Catherine did such a wonderful job in um, explaining all these different constraints on media production. But, um, you know, regardless of that, um, now we, we experience things relatively asynchronously. And um, I'm thinking about, you know, the, the, um, the famous um, Dewey defeats Truman. Um, I don't know if I am in slideshow mode. Let me make sure that I have... I have switched over, but I think that, you know, you had these moments which were experienced um, kind of as a, as a shared thing, and that's not necessarily even the case anymore. You know, it seems like um, we're, we're often hearing about, you know, percentages of the population that, that don't know fundamental things about um, that are that are going on which are really consuming another segment of the population because it is so popular po possible to construct a filter bubble where the information that you um, that you encounter really does um, reinforce your own biases a another thing you know there used to be I think a lot more media mentoring you would have um, watching uh, television as not only a family experience but but often a community experience. And um, oftentimes now it's presented with that commentary already embedded. You've selected your, your sources via, you know, Apple News or um, if you're one of the 62% of Americans that gets um, a lot of your news um, via social media. You know, however you're getting it, you've, you've made decisions about which sites to follow. And I, one of the things that I find particularly fascinating are the, the rise of these things like um, Burst Your Bubble by The Guardian or um, or Slate does a sort of alternative site of the week. Well, just the idea that these sites have to be um, highlighted and presented and that they're, that they're going to be something that the readership is not coming across sort of in the natural course of events, you know, really does in, indicate a big fracture. And I like, I, you know, I like to think of that as, you know, we've never at any point in time um, been as likely to be surrounded by people who have similar um, socioeconomic realities and professional um, backgrounds that 
that we do now. You know, um, schools particularly um, are becoming much more um, racially identifiable than, than they were, um, but, but more so um, economically identifiable. And, and this sort of sorting based on, um, on uh, savvy and income, I think we see based on the fact that um, people who live in um, low-income neighborhoods are less likely to have uh, certain kinds of internet access. They're less likely to have um, Wi-Fi, high-speed access. They're more likely to be mobile only. And um, thinking about really the constraints that that puts on you, not so much as an information consumer, that of course that is a factor, but as an information producer, you're really not kind of able to participate in um, in publication in the same way, in the same um, sort of empowered way that you might um, if you had, uh, you know, more robust connectivity. I think that, you know, there is a digital divide, and I think that it largely is, um, you know, mobile versus um, more robust computing. And that line is blurring, and there are, you know, extraordinary things that are produced on mobile devices, but it is more difficult, and you have to be a lot more intentional about that. A lot, I feel like the the standard um, sort of academic products are, are still those that you're going to need, um, you know, more, um, more keyboard functionality, that sort of thing. Um, you know, newspaper circulation, that legacy media that um, Catherine was speaking about before is continuing to, to fall. And again, that, that's another shared avenue um, of communication that, that has eroded. And now, you know, it's entirely possible for the entire family to, to all be, um, you know, looking at different things, having different different mediations of the same sort of experience where they would have been focused on that single television set, um, you know, years before. You know, ideally this is great for um, marginalized voices, people who, um, who might not otherwise be able to scrape together a readership or a listenership or um, sponsorship from a small number of people. You know, we've seen um, crowdsourcing and, and um, sort of um, patron funding really explode. And I think, um, you know, that's going to continue to grow for media organizations as people realize that, you know, maybe media is, is worth investing in. Um, you know, I think that the record readership is of when you count the the online subscribers of some of the, um, the media outlets today show that people really are, you know, some people are willing, willing to pay for information. But again, that's, that's a distinction that's going to be made largely on class. And, you know, as I mentioned before, you know, we're surrounding ourselves by, with people that, um, that are, are similar to ourselves, even though we may, we may claim that we're, we're being individualistic as we're creating all these bits and bytes and as we run across the internet and interact with news and increase the probability of the news that we encounter the next time will be like that. I don't think most people have any indication of sort of the, the amount of data that's being harvested from them um, through the many, many, um, you know, advertising, um, extensions that are running every time you search, um, you know, major, major sites, products that track you from site to site, associate your offline behaviors like credit cards, buying of prescription medicines, things like that with your online behaviors to really um, give, um, give data corporations a really um, accurate and intimate picture of people's um, lifestyles. You may have heard that the story about um, the teenage girl who 
um, target intuited that she was um, expecting a baby before her family did because um, the patterns of her purchases that she was making at Target with a credit card, which allows them to, to store and, um, and collate that information, indicated that her behavior was that of um, someone who was expecting a baby. So they sent her baby coupons and um, started this whole dialogue. But, the, you know, I do think we have even, you know, as I said, we may look um, – you know, to have more differences. Um, it's possible that it, the digital realm does, um, does allow for more creativity, but on campus, there is still a huge pressure. This is, um, you know, I, I think that anyone who's on campus realizes um, that every campus has its, its sort of ways and means, and, um, and the networks that are existing there contribute to the sense of, um, of, well, this must be true because all of my friends have seen this and it's been promoted by someone I know. And this is, you know, everyone I know is posting about this particular hashtag. So I, again, the news is sort of pre-digested and there's a commentary on it before you um, become involved with it. So, you know, all the people that are, that are interacting, um, you know, with these, with these social media sites that are then, you know, cross-referencing all these information from these other platforms, I, I always tell students I think one of the best things that they can do is just obfuscate, you know, that when they're signing a, a terms of service, it's it's really not like signing a legal contract. You know, who's to say that you're not, you know, the 75-year-old woman in Omaha, you know, to go ahead and, um, and take those liberties just for the sake of making those types of information um, less valuable, um, degrade, degrading their worth. I think I um, remember reading that, you know, while the name of – the average American and their their buying habits were worth something along um, the, the nature of uh, fifty cents. That um, people who were expecting babies it went up to around three dollars because that's the difference that marketers know they're going to be buying particular products and they can do very um, faceted marketing based on your zip code. They can do differential pricing. They can do special offers based on um, your behaviors in the past. They might um, you know offer some some types of of loyalty incentives. But every time um, I get a, a solicitation for um, someone either intended for someone much younger than me or much older than me or someone who's expecting a baby, I feel like I've sort of won because I've defeated some sort of um, commercial commercial marketing program somewhere. Um, you know, I do think that, that Facebook can be a crazy place. Um, where I am right now, we're in the midst of um, – uh, a midterm uh, Senate race and the news is really crazy. Um, there is, um, I saw an analysis today which said that in response to the Las Vegas shootings, um, Democratic Congress people were 60% of them mentioned guns in the response to, um, to that event, that tragedy, whereas um, Republican Congress people were only um, only two percent of them mentioned um, guns specifically in response to that. So when when you're able to to sort of quantify those things, and um, you know, and the thing is, I think a lot of times these 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 ideas get promoted, and there's no correction. You know, it may immediately be dispelled, or or if you read the the article itself, the analysis may not be exactly what is suggested by the title. So much of the time, this stuff is just optimized for the web 
what you're going to see in terms of your, your headline, your cut lines, your graphics are going to be what's been proven to attract people to the sites, not just to click through, but also to stay on the sites. That's another metric that's very valuable because that proves attention and we are in this attention economy. So, you know, I, I try to, to tell, um, you know, my students that, you know, they're sort of paying with their attention. It's that transaction that, um, that you know, I was sort of implying in the beginning. But uh, what, what's absolutely fascinating to me is the fact that all of these people who are um, basically reporting on themselves on Facebook all the time, they're documenting all their um, sort of bad behavior, they're, they're creating sort of a dossier that people can go back and point to. Um, I was just reading a book of, or a long-form story about a woman who'd been involved in a crime, and it went back and it analyzed five years of Facebook posts from this woman where she'd gone from living in a village to living in a city and gone through this sort of transformation. But it was just amazing to me that they felt like this was this was just fodder that they could they could plumb for um, for whatever they wanted. So you know, I, th I think it's important that that we do say you know, privacy is an option. It may not be the norm, but it is something that you can um, you can choose to actively decide to do. Um, this is a, a link, and, and I'm hoping that you can put this up. It was a really excellent collection of um, of things that were um, circulated via our State Library Association that had to do with um, th these sorts of topics, especially from, you know, um, I guess maybe trying to situate this in terms of uh, in terms of a larger trend, um, and I do think it will it will continue to be. I think you know in some ways this is great because it's a teachable moment. Our students are living in a really teachable moment, and there are all these um, plugins that you can use to transform your social media feeds to those of someone with opposite political views, and I think that is you know, the most valuable conversation to have with people right now is to say, do you know how, how partitioned your own media consumption has become? Because unless you, you take these sort of um, active steps, it is very easy to, to get very, very narrow and to get that, that sort of reinforcement that what you believe is, is the case is, is indeed the case. And um, again, it, it creates a fracture in society that I don't think is particularly good. But um, thank you all for, for inviting me. I really have, I enjoyed um, Catherine's presentation so much, and I'm really very much looking forward to, to hearing from, um, from Peter Adams. I think that the News Literacy Project is doing some exciting work, so I'm, I'm really eager to hear more about um, what's going on there, because like I said, I think, I think this is the opportune moment to be having these conversations and really training um, the next generation of citizens to make these decisions. Thanks, Wendy. Uh, let me get my, <clears throat> excuse me, get my screen share set up here. All right, so um, we have a pretty limited amount of time, so I, I wanted to just touch on, you know, the, the, the topic of, of fake news as a, as a type of misinformation and sometimes disinformation. Um, and why I'm, I'm worried about uh, the overextension, the weaponization, the politicization of that term. Um, it is a very trendy term. It is a term that, that uh, gets clicks and, and is, is highly interesting to people. It also packs conference workshops, I've noticed, uh, as I make the rounds uh, at various conferences. So everybody's interested in it. Uh, Catherine's right. It's, it's nothing new. 
but there is a renewed public awareness about um, fake news. So just briefly, you can find the News Literacy Project here online uh, in our virtual classroom, which is called Check Out the Checkology Virtual Classroom here at checkology.org. Um, it's free to register for and use one-to-one -one with students. You can also find us on social media here. And I've just launched a new uh, weekly email newsletter, kind of a weekend news literacy rundown called The Sift, uh, sending every Friday. I'm actually polishing it up right now uh, for this week. And you can register for that and check out previous editions at The Sift. So uh, at the newsliteracyproject.org forward slash The Sift. Um, and that just gives teachers uh, a variety of examples and ideas for integrating news literacy into their classrooms with a quick bell ringer or discussion uh, all the way up to, to PBL and, and student-directed uh, engagement. So um, fake news as a, as a category, I think um, despite the way the term has been deployed, it is important for us to track um, what this actually is. So, so information that is like this uh, entirely uh, fabricated or false um, and the vast majority of it like America's last line of defense um, sort of hides behind a thin veil of uh, satirical disclosure so I call it disingenuous satire I think is a, is a good way to think about fake news um, because it's it is uh, just constructed to get clicks so the headlines have a relationship to actual uh, social issues to divisive social issues um, and people's passions and people's emotions, particularly now with the, the deep political and partisan ideological divisions in the U.S., um, uh, get people clicking and clicks make money. So these purveyors of fake news, really uh, um, many of them are only interested in the revenue that this generates. Many of these sites were started as jokes. Many of these sites were started uh, just to see what they could get people to believe and click on. Here's an example on the left in the wake of Hurricane Harvey, a repurposed image uh, from a Boston protest in 2015 um, that uh, Black Lives Matter protesters were blocking relief, uh, hurricane relief supplies on the highway in Houston. And that's intended to, to generate outrage and a click. And even if you land on the page and quickly debunk it, um, it's like a flash grenade. It's already gotten its page view. It's already made its, uh, its uh, money. Um, and if it's able to rack up enough page views, it can translate into real revenue. Um, that particular rumor was especially pernicious because uh, Black Lives Matter was actually involved in delivering aid in the wake of Harvey. Um, a lot of these sites mimic the look and feel of institutional news media, um, or they are, are presented as sort of alternatives to mainstream news that doesn't want to tell you this, that, or the other uh, thing that's going to get you to click. So here's uh, a pretty famous fake news site called abcnews.com.co. Uh, That's its URL. Uh, it vaguely looks like the ABC logo, and it is definitely designed to trick uh, folks as it did Corey Lewandowski and Eric Trump uh, back uh, last year, a year ago. Um, the other stories are, are outrageous. They're intended to prompt intense curiosity, um, and uh, it taps into a little bit of what attracts people to conspiracy theories. Um, and again, tapping into partisan uh, passions. Um, so I, again, like to sort of think of fake news as a category of misinformation or disinformation pretty tightly. Um, and I, I, I'm concerned about, you know, folks who use the term uh, too loosely because I think a lot is lost when we do so. Um, but we do need, I think, to keep track of that particular kind of uh, misinformation. Um, one activity you can do is to take a site like America's Last Line of Defense, and if you don't want to give them a page view, which I urge you not to, you can actually Google America's Last Line of Defense 
um, and right click the home page or right click a store a link to a story copy the URL and go to archive.is or go to the Internet Archives Wayback Machine and drop that archived uh, drop that copied link into the archiver and then you can share that that archived link with students which will not drive traffic to the site itself um, but if you do take a look at a fake news site and sort of deconstruct it with students you'll notice clues that are pretty subtle um, that this is satire so this story is filed under this the site section potatoes um, this one is filed under beefaroni um, which makes no sense. Of course, most people obviously don't see that one until they click. And by the time you've clicked and landed on the page, they've accomplished their goal. Um, there are also, you know, semi-subtle uh, declarations that this is satire. Um, those, those articles were written by Freedom. So the by byline was just Freedom. Um, and uh, Freedom's little bio here is, is, uh, has a lot of clues and, and red flags that this is, um, uh, not credible information. Uh, and then they do have a small about disclaimer, um, basically saying that uh, uh, everything on this site is satirical and a work of fiction, um, it, but you have to look. And then there's a big satire S-rated label there. Um, PolitiFact, uh, uh, under their pundit fact um, uh, section of their site, has, has created a, a collection of URLs uh, and I, I, it hasn't been updated in, in a month or two, but this was the, the list last time I, I sort of pulled those URLs down. Um, and it's interesting to just look at the URLs and see if you can notice patterns and then look at themes. Uh, again, two big themes that stick out are mimicking institutional news media, um, mimicking standards-based um, journalism, um, or uh, presenting yourself as an alternative, so trying to sort of exploit people's cynicism about institutional news media and saying, here's a story that the news media doesn't want to tell you. Um, a great place to go um, to, for examples on a timely, uh, in a timely way uh, is the, the, the what's new section of the Snopes website, and then you can filter by the, hash, by the uh, tag fake news. So they have a fake news tag they also have a, a photography uh tag for manipulated images so when you're looking for something a viral rumor sometimes viral rumors are a great kind of side door into civic engagement social conversations with students um and it, again you can just take a high level view of the of the recent fake news stories that snopes has taken on um and notice patterns right um mandalay bay has thrown off a ton of fake news and and rumors um, all the debates about the national anthem and the NFL, um, now Halloween uh, and clowns and rumors of clowns, uh, uh, creepy clowns, murderous clowns are all over the place. That gets people clicking again. So my quick piece on why we should not call all misinformation fake news is that one, fake news is a very specific misinformation strategy. Um, and that misinformation that's not presented as, as news or as credible information is something else, right? Um, so if it's not created as a piece of journalism, not intended to look like news, um, it's actually something else. So a hoax, a manipulated image, a meme isn't really presented as news. Um, and then conflating things like rumors and hoaxes and false claims, and especially, I think, mistakes in journalism, which, uh, which are part of the process of, of practicing journalism. They're, they are uh, uh, regrettable, and, but inevitable. They, they happen um, uh, with a fair amount of frequency. Most are rather minor and get corrected, but if you equate mistakes in journalism with fake news the way that uh, uh, some political figures have, 
um, that, that really obscures and, and ends the inquiry to sort of overextend that term. Um, I wanted to point out a couple of um, recent trends in fake news production. So um, a lot of sites are now outsourcing the production of fake news to um, users, so sort of crowdsourcing it by creating um, templates like break your own news where you can create a headline, you can create a lower third, you can upload an image, and they make it very frictionless to share to social. So you'll notice the post to Facebook, post to Twitter, post to Tumblr links below. They're essentially not paying freelancers to write these pieces the way other operations do. They're letting everyone create fake news to fool their friends, tweak the news, uh, and share it on social. And when that drives page views, the, the generator site hosts those pieces and makes the revenue. Um, here's another one, easy to trick all your friends and they'll get a message that they got owned, but actually you kind of, you kind of sold their eyeballs to this site where, which, which got ad revenue because they clicked on it when you shared it on social. Um, so helping students really avoid engaging in this kind of stuff, uh, I, I think is important. Um, here's a site that lets you choose a celebrity and make a fake news piece about that celebrity. Um, people have used this site to, to. Uh, create stories that all Taco Bells are to close by June 1st, for example. That got people clicking so much so that the AP walked it back in their new not real news rundown of fake news and viral rumors. Um, things like, you know, a very popular candy being discontinued uh, is, a, is a really effective um, uh, strategy for fake news purveyors. Here's another site that helps you prank your friends. And I always encourage media literacy and news literacy educators to not have students do this. I have heard folks at times say, you know, I have students create fake stories, even share fake stories, or try to get people to, you know, try to see who can create the best or most convincing fake story. I really am concerned about having students create misinformation. There's enough misinformation out there to take on as object lessons and teachable moments that we don't have to have students engaging in, in creating it. Here's another one, uh, and yet another one. Twerker is actually a site that lets you edit headlines uh, and then republish them and share them as JPEGs. Um, and I, you know, I think having students use tools like that to create fake information as an object lesson, I understand the motivation. I affirm the end goal, which is to have students be informed about fake news, but I think it's a little bit like teaching students about pollution by having them actually pollute. Um, and, and, and it concerns me uh, a lot. So I always tell educators this is a bad idea, don't do it. A um, couple other trends that, that we're seeing kind of on the misinformation landscape is the blending of authentic or genuine journalism and fake news uh, uh, and, and also raw documents. So um, uh, that happened uh, with the leaks of the uh, Macron campaign in France. There were authentic emails mixed with inauthentic emails that was sort of a, a, a development from the podesta leaks in the u.s which were all authentic to the macron leaks which had fake emails mixed in with authentic just to create a general atmosphere of confusion there was also a, a an incident where the the guardian's entire website was copied you can copy the html code of any website and rehost it at a new url that looked very much like the guardian's url except it used a turkish character that looks like a lowercase i without the dot. Um, so it was very easy to think you were looking at The Guardian and then fake stories were inserted among the real stories that were copied from The Guardian. Um, that appears to have been a Russian state-sponsored effort. Um, so that's something I think to, to keep on students' radar is the, the intentional blending of authentic and inauthentic documents and information. Um, we also saw a recent story this week um, about uh, programmatic ad servers like Google's AdSense placing ads 
to sites that were posing as um, People Magazine, Cosmopolitan, Vanity Fair that actually weren't um, uh, affiliated with those publications, but they used their logos. Um, and then those got placed on fact-checking websites um, because obviously PolitiFact and Snopes uh, need the advertising revenue to operate, so they sell real estate on their website for programmatic ad placements, but they're not in control of what gets served. And if we all go to PolitiFact right now, we might all be served a different ad, as Wendy was talking about, um, based on our browsing history. So just to wrap up, I think other things like this doctored image, uh, which, which was well-known in the wake of Harvey and a bunch of other hurricanes, sites like eBuzz that try to drum up a following, sharing old and repurposed context, uh, old and repurposed uh, videos and pictures and give them a new context every time there's an event that, that uh, gives them an opportunity to do so, sometimes to sell their accounts. People who Photoshop celebrities wearing shirts with different messages. Uh, this is the authentic shirt, by the way. Um, these kinds of things are not fake news. They're not presented as news. They're presented as raw information, amazing nature photos, um, astonishing uh, you know, user-generated stuff. Um, uh, so I think we get into trouble if we start to call these kinds of mimetic rumors and viral rumors, uh, image-based rumors, um, fake news. Um, and there are also, uh, you know, tweets. So there's a lot of faking of, of authentic um, uh, seeming um, content. So a lot of people think that the way to get to the truth of a situation is to go to social media and see what people are tweeting. Um, and in the wake of Hurricane Harvey, there was a fake uh, campaign um, to convince people that looting was happening um, that wasn't. Um, and it, it uh, used the Black Lives Matter hashtag. It used heavy-handed racial stereotypes, definitely sought to sort of stir up uh, racist sentiment um, among uh, folks. Um, and they basically took images from across the, the web. So that uh, box of ashes or that container for ashes is actually from Etsy. Um, this is a screenshot from uh, a YouTube video just to sort of construct the appearance that looting was happening. This is an old picture that's all over the web. Uh, and, you know, it's supposed to be uh, Houston in August and everybody's in coats. Um, so you can have students engage in some digital forensics, do some reverse image searching, and really um, explore a lot of this stuff. There was a similar uh, hashtag in the wake of the Freddie Gray uh, hearing in Baltimore that pulled pictures from around the web, including this overtly uh, racist and uh, Daily Mail piece. Um, but that's actually a Kentucky Fried Chicken in Karachi, Pakistan. So I think it's important to sort of give students that understanding of, finally, um, I think it is important to help students understand what the aspirational standards of quality journalism are, why they matter, um, what good sourcing looks like, um, what the role of documents and evidence uh, is in, an, in, a, in a credible piece of information, um, why it's important to pursue neutrality. So, I, you know, I agree with Catherine that it's not perfect objectivity uh, is uh, almost certainly impossible for any human to achieve. And even if it were possible, we're all too biased ourselves as consumers to, to uh, know what it looks like. But I think um, pursuing neutrality, wrestling with questions about what is more or less neutral in terms of word choice and news judgment um, is a very worthwhile pursuit that, that yields dividends and is an important part of the national conversation or plays an important role. Um, and then pursue, trying to be fair, I'm pursuing fairness, <clears throat> providing readers with context, the process of verification, verifying something before you publish it, being accountable for mistakes. These aren't controversial. We could all disagree and argue about which um, news outlets or which sources of information 
aspire to these kinds of standards in the best way and the most effective way. Um, but uh, the standards themselves are, are, are not, I think, controversial. We can all agree that these are important. So teaching students what those are and what they look like in practice, I think, empowers them to really detect and avoid the kinds of misinformation I've been showing, help them recognize quality journalism when they see it. So I think it's really, really important that we show, show students and use quality coverage as an object lesson as well. We shouldn't only show students news reports when, when they're somehow flawed or when we're going to criticize them or tear them down, but also show them exemplary investigative pieces, uh, exemplary community coverage. Um, so that they can compare and they have actually a reference point and then it helps students enter and hopefully I think be heard in conversations about trust. Um, so once they master uh, those standards and have a working understanding of those standards, they can then really reach out and respond to coverage in a way that's much more empowering than if they don't have that um, fundamental skill set. So that's my piece. I'm going to, um, I think, yield back to uh, Rebecca here. Let me figure out how to Stop sharing my screen. And actually, Stephen, I'm um, oh, sorry, Peter, before you do that, do you mind actually scrolling back to your standard slide? Because um, I wanted to I wanted to ask a question that um, but that sure. slide actually kind of gives some good framing for. Um, sure. so I want to thank Catherine, Wendy, and Peter for a really amazing and substantive set of uh, material here for our audience to grapple with. Um, it's a it's a challenging topic, and we have heard, uh, so it, it actually turned out well, the sequence, um, because we heard from Catherine on some historical perspectives and um, discussion of, you know, variations in media information environments um, as they've changed and evolved across history. Uh, we've heard about, you know, some constraints in the news formats um, and the ways that new media frames uses of uh, and sharing of um, traditional kind of more news-oriented content uh, in, you know, different information flows that we've seen before. We have heard from uh, Wendy on, um, in particular, what I, what I kind of take away from uh, Wendy's presentation was a discussion of, you know, the silos of the like-minded that we have emerging um, and the partitioning of, um, you know, news groupings and audience groupings um, based on people's friendship networks uh, and the ways that, you know, people are posting, sharing, and, and opining on, you know, their perspectives around the content that they're sharing. Um, but that this is occurring, uh, you know, very much within these, these kind of like-minded silos, um, such that, you know, 62% of Americans are, are, you know, getting their news through the social media um, gateway. And, you know, we talked also about the data harvesting, uh, and then Peter chimed in with some really amazing concrete examples for people who are thinking about how to raise, uh, you know, um, the topic of fake news with their students uh, and uh, some amazing resources for uh, for doing that um, that are very powerful uh, that can show students um, you know very specifically what to look for in the content that they're uh, viewing and clicking and consuming um, and sharing and uh, so so this was a, a really interesting slide because I think Peter that um, you're right to say that uh, it's important to share with our students that that while um, we want to sort of question this idea of objectivity, and that has been kind of one of the tenets of media education, is to bring about critical thinking in, um, in our students um, and to allow them to understand that news is a construct. Um, at the same time, we still want to we, we want to share with them that that there are standards to news production, um, and that uh, we want to you know let them know that. Um, 
quality journalism involves the pursuit of neutrality uh, and fairness and balance. Um, and that that is a value that has long stood on the test of time for the role of journalism in a democracy. Because I think that, I think there's been some recent research and I, I'm, it's been kind of like just sort of, um, I've seen it in passing about the ways that um, US citizens have grown in their skepticism of mainstream media. Um, and also that, you know, um, given what we're seeing from our uh, current leadership in uh, um, the US presidential office, we have you know, a leader who is actually actively promoting a skepticism. And so what I wonder is you know, whether our young people are becoming skeptical of the wrong content, um, of content that in fact actually has merit and value, um, and whether that undermining that we see as potentially a strategy by <laughs> the Russian um, intervention, for instance, in the campaign, to undermine our democracy through an erosion of the role of media, um, whether that's succeeding, uh, and and what, how can we sort of, you know, combat that through active uh, media education? Um, and so, what's the best way to kind of convey these types of standards to our students? Um, I'll I'll leave that open to everyone for for comment. I do, you know, I, I do think. Uh, I would actually call it cynicism is what I worry about. Skepticism is great. I want students to be skeptical of everything. I want them to ask critical questions of everything that they encounter. Um, but if they're cynical, uh, then that concerns me. So cynicism, you know, assumes you have the answer and actually ends inquiry, right? Skepticism is an invitation to begin a line of inquiry. So if I see what I perceive to be a loaded headline or the use of a term in a loaded way, uh, and I just conclude that that's driven by some kind of systematic agenda, then that's conversation closed. If I explore that phrasing and look at consistency across phrasing, if I look and see if the ombudsman's ever written about that particular word usage, if I ask myself, uh, are my own biases getting wrapped up in this? How could it be more neutral? What would I have done if I were rewriting this headline or choosing an image? Um, then that's a very rich, uh, a line of inquiry that you can engage in with students and, and one I think that, that helps protect against the kind of cynical assumption that this is all uh, uh, easier than it actually is. I think personally one of the things that we can help students to realize is that um, you can hold two oppositional points of view and both be somewhat valid. I think um, you know just showing different interpretations of the same events. I love the, um, the museum um, interface, which has the front pages from different media outlets, um, traditional news, but so indicative of um, different cultures takes on, on sort of the, you know, the big, the big topics of the day. That's something that I always um, use to show students how, how culture um, can influence uh, the way that the news is, is reported. And, um, and I think that just it, experiencing that nuance, I think will help them um, be more critical of the, the, um, the outlets that they do choose in the future, that the choices have been made for them. Yeah, I think, too, I mean, I think too, helping students understand the difference between matters of fact uh, and then trying to interpret what a set of facts or a fact pattern might mean or indicate um, are two very different things. 
um, so that we don't arrive at a time, you know, which I think we've, we're, we're grappling with this now and trying to not sort of succumb to this idea that you have your facts and I have mine, that I have, you know, mainstream facts and you have alternative facts, as Kellyanne Conway put it. I, I think that's a deeply disturbing uh, notion um, that if we lose track of the fact that there are still things that are demonstrably true uh, and that those are important to recognize and agree on as the basis for a conversation about how to handle certain problems, what solutions, what public policies um, work or don't work. Yeah, and I'd like to chime in. Can you hear me? Yep. Okay, um, I just want to chime in. Everything that my colleagues have said um, points to me, again, to underscore the fact that it's very important that we take responsibility as educators and um, just as people who are part of the digital environment to number one, understand what this environment opens up to us. My colleagues gave really good concrete examples of the complexity of that environment and this new sort of frontier that we've entered and the ability for people to practice different ways of conversing and to play around with truth and untruth and so on. And there's a huge opportunity here to rethink how we operate. And so responsibility to me is number one. It's the responsibility of the educators to understand the digital environment and teach about it. And um, in order to make that happen, it's the responsibility of people who are in charge of education to really advocate for the fact that we need media literacy education policies put in place so that this kind of study, the work that the three of us are doing and many, many other people are doing becomes um, foundational to how we teach. And I think if we can start there on a really base level, we can start, um, you know, we can start making some real headway and getting people to wrap their heads around, you know, these issues of participation that are pervasive and are actually foundational to, as you said, Rebecca, um, our democracy, just the way that we live in the world. So um, I'm very passionate about that idea, this foundational notion of taking responsibility and know the digital environment. Sorry, there's a uh, siren going on in the background. I'm just going to pause for one moment. <laughs> Okay, there we go. Okay, and I'm gonna, um, so thank you so much for, for that commentary. And Catherine, to sort of um, dovetail off of what you were just saying, I'd like to uh, end our webinar today on a positive note um, and, and ask you all what you kind of think about this trend. I've been sort of mulling around this observation of how interesting it is that, um, you know, whether it's young people or ourselves, how, how much uh, we have gravitated towards this position of wanting to always kind of assert and comment and present our opinion about and you know and frame these forwards that we that we make these shares that we make in social media um, and position it vis-a-vis -vis ourselves our identities what we think um, and we allow that to kind of evolve over time our perspectives as we learn more and more through um, the content that we're engaging with um, and learning from like within the social constructive environment of the social media landscape from our friends and from you know expert sources or not expert sources etc how that plays into kind of our identity development I mean because I think that all of this sharing is resulting in um, you could say learning in a sense uh, among you know people who are engaging in it and um, I just wonder whether you know you have thoughts about 
this, this kind of active, constructive engagement with this content in new ways and how it may relate, because we see it, you know, parlay itself into activism in some cases um, and into real world action and into organization, et cetera. So do you have any, to end on a kind of an optimistic note um, following on Kath, well, Catherine said, do you have any thoughts on that and how that plays into this process? Um, I guess the only thing I have to say is that, you know, identity is shifting as well. And when you enter a new um, communication environment, there's a new way of thinking about who you are. And uh, again, it's, there's a great opportunity here to teach about that and to teach about the fact that one can construct a very um, thoughtful identity in this new environment. There, there, there are great opportunities here. Okay, I'm not going to go down the cynical route. There are great opportunities here for that. I do think too it's important to to not discount um, the artistry that is present in digital media and the fact that um, it is performative to a large extent so you know I I, I don't um, I used to know you know my high schoolers would have several different accounts on the same platform to share with different groups one might be a family group and one might be a f intimate friends and another might be you know a larger a larger group but the they were very conscious of audience and they were very conscious of marketing and branding and of, um, of, of their own, um, the value of their own, um, product placement and association with places and things and people. And, um, you know, I, I think, I think we're, we're creating, you know, a, a whole, a whole society where people are very, um, they're marketing themselves constantly because of this interconnectivity and the fact that people are so accessible. And, um, and you know, like I said, I think that it can be positive and it can be creative. I agree with, with Catherine, there are amazing opportunities. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, the identity idea, I mean, I really am trying to create resources that help activate students as fact checkers and upstanders for accuracy to understand why misinformation matters, um, why it, it threatens them and their fellow citizens. Uh, I think there's no better case study than even this week was a very busy news week on the Russian disinformation front, the, the, the activities of the Internet Research Agency in Russia, uh, actually paying people to hold self-defense seminars to uh, fan the flames of racial tensions in the U.S., of anxiety about gun control or gun rights. Uh, about religion, um, posing as organizations affiliated with Black Lives Matter, posing as organizations affiliated with Second Amendment rights groups, posing as uh, organizations that are advocating that Texas secede from the union and actually organizing protests from abroad. Um, that should outrage everybody. Uh, and, and I think the core, it's a, it's a real call to action for, you know, teens who there is no end to the activities you can engage in online, knocking down fake images, doing reverse image searches, answering back, correcting things, calling things out. Um, ProPublica just launched a new hate speech um, bot that you can report hate speech online to, and then they will sort of add it to their investigations of that problem and try to hold the platforms accountable for enforcing standards in a way that are that makes sense. Um, and to really engage in that. So I, I think there are tons of opportunities, tons of tools um, that students can use uh, that we didn't have time to touch on here, but, uh, but uh, I would say definitely seek out. Mm -hmm.
Super. Well, Catherine, Wendy, and Peter, I just want to thank you again for your time and for sharing uh, your knowledge with our audience today and with me and with, with one another. And I also want to thank Namely and Educator Innovator for giving us the platform to be able to discuss these exciting topics. Um, and um, I think we will close it out here uh, and look forward to perhaps uh, some you know, commentary adjacent to this video when it launches uh, online. Thanks, everyone, right. and uh, Thank have you. a nice day. Thank you. Thank Thanks. you, too. Thanks. Mm -hmm.